Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Paul Jackson. Paul is the Group Chief Executive of HSF, otherwise known as the Hospital Saturday Fund. Originally founded by the Lord Meath and Hall family in 1873, it was meant to help provide hospital access to London's poor. However, its modern-day trading arm, HSF Health Plan, now delivers medical cover and additional well-being benefits to companies and individuals. Um, Paul, very warm welcome to you, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Pleasure. Absolutely pleasure. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you um, on the programme with us as well, Paul. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to understand your take on leadership as a whole. And if we look at that word leader in isolation first and foremost and just sort of dive straight in, as it were, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. Well, I've, I've been chief executive of HSF for nine years now, and uh, I suppose it, it's a huge responsibility. So first and foremost, I think leadership is a, is a responsibility to the, you know, obviously the beneficiaries of the charity and to the, the staff that work for me, but also, you know, the, to, to give some uh, support support to uh, to our trustees um, but really it's, it's then because we as you mentioned the, the charity's been going 150 years but we uh, we now I earn our money from, uh, from a health plan which is a type of five medical insurance uh, and we've had really the same type of product for the last sort of 70 years or so um, but we need to innovate all the time because we're in a competitive world and, and the more um, funds that we get uh, the more that we can we can help charities across the UK and Ireland so really hopefully I've shown great innovation in the, in the last nine years we've we've changed the structure of the, the charity quite a lot and we, we've We've grown enormously over that time, um, but we've also managed to increase the grant making um, even more than the actual trading company's grown. So, so I think I think hopefully we would, you know it's, it's it's been a good period for HSF. Obviously, at the moment it's a little bit more difficult, but um, but the charity is, is is still pretty vibrant. Mm. Of course, we talked about those words innovation sort of flexibility adaptability uh, there uh, quite a bit Paul and uh, that's especially relevant now isn't it with COVID-19 and the challenges that the pandemic has brought about and I can imagine that as well as having to immediately adapt to the challenges that that's sort of thrust forward um, there's also going to be some changes in how the charity operates them in the future as well as a result of this. Absolutely. I mean, in the, initially, what what we did was we we changed the way that we uh, we're, we're currently grant making. So um, we initially thought, well, you know, our, our way of grant making in the past, which is physically to go and and visit organisations and and ensure that you know all the due diligence is done before we we make a grant. Obviously, isn't possible at the moment. And we also felt that the, you know, in terms of the the grant making that we we, we were carrying out in the past probably wasn't always appropriate for the current climate. So basically what we did is we uh, we set up a, a special COVID grant um, and so far we have helped 102 charities with things like PPE, helplines, all sorts of things, just about anything you can think of that uh, you know, been, uh, has been affected by COVID. So we're really proud of what we've done. Um, and, and you're right, I think we, we are going to have to look at how we're, we're grant-making future. Obviously, there's going to be Zoom calls and things like that. But we, we have decided at our board meeting last week to, uh, to recommence 
what we call normal grant making, but obviously in, in in a different type of way. So we're all very excited about that, and and certainly one thing we're we're very proud of is the fact that we really did help people during during this this pandemic. In terms of the health in terms of the health plan itself, obviously uh, you know the health plan itself has been turned on its head really in in, in terms of what it what it's been doing. So. It's normal line of work would be to help people with, you know, with their dental bills and opticians and, and things like that. But now we really have been helping people who've been, you know, unfortunate enough to catch COVID and end up in hospital. So we've been paying claims like that. We've also been helping people with, a, with mental wellbeing helplines and things. So it's been, it's definitely been different. Um, I'm hoping that we, you know, even in the new norm that, uh, you know that the health plan, the general work of the health plan, will will come back, and we're certainly seeing that, particularly in Ireland at the moment, and now with dentists opening again, for instance, in the UK, that we're starting to see more claims on that side again. Mm, certainly, and that's all going to uh, to pick up in the uh, future for sure. Um, during the um the time that we've sort of spent getting through the uh, the pandemic thus far, given the renewed focus on mental health and well being during this time, Paul, I'm interested to understand how the uh, the staff at HSF have um, sort of found it dealing with the challenges that the pandemic has posed because I can imagine as a leader it's been sort of quite a stressful time as well having to provide that vital reassurance when you've needed to amid all of the uncertainty it's it has been really difficult we've um we we, we took a view that communication was paramount with all this so um we we do have um in the UK uh, just just above 50 percent of our employees are are furloughed. Uh, I mean, obviously, they're the ones that mostly work for the, the trading company. Um, but we have made sure that we've spoken to them literally every week uh, without fail. We, we've told them exactly what we're, we're, we're doing in terms of reopening offices and things like that. For instance, our, our main office opened again last week. So we've been as transparent as we, we possibly could be. In terms of the people that are, remained active, and obviously the majority in, in the UK were working from home, um, that that was again. It was a, it was a different kind of uh, strategy that we needed because you know you got to understand that the hospital strategy fund is going 150 years, and we literally had to change ourselves into a into a, a non-working from home to a working from home organisation in in a matter of a week, and and we did that quite successfully in, in fairness, and we have been able to keep the business going. We're very lucky because. We have an Irish office as well, mm. and the Irish office was able to stay open for the whole time. So, so that gave us a little bit of extra robustness that we probably wouldn't have had, and, and I'm sure some of the health plan providers in the country weren't lucky enough to have that. So, we're very we're we're, we're very pleased with the way it's gone. Actually, you know, in the sense that we've been able to keep all the staff on board, um, and we've and and I say that some some people have unfortunately. We put on furlough, but the schemes work very well for us, and we're starting to unwind that now. So we're 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 bringing staff members out of furlough, literally as we speak. And with regard to the government's leadership throughout this uh, pandemic, the furlough scheme and uh, small business loans have been two of the huge. Um, really um, good things that they've um, of course put in to uh, help support businesses but there's been a great deal of debate about the clarity of some safety guidelines throughout uh, the pandemic and also going into the future as businesses begin to open up again um have you been satisfied paul that you've understood exactly what's been expected of you throughout this period not always as you say the furlough scheme has been excellent and it's been it's worked really well for us because it it, it stopped us having to make some quite difficult decisions perhaps but um, in terms of in terms of the guidelines, it has been a little bit difficult because although people are you know are being told to work from home, we are 
deemed to be key workers. We work in financial services, and of course, we're a medical organisation as well. And we provide we provide helplines. So, from our point of view, it, it, it was a little bit of a mixed message. But I suppose I took I took the view, and and the board of the trading company and the trustees of the charity took the view for, for completely from a, a staff wellbeing point of view that we would close the office, and we would uh, and, and and we would make sure that you know people were as safe as possible. Um, I personally have been coming to the office uh, once a week just to make sure everything's fine. In the cent- our office is based in the central centre of London on the South Bank, and it has been quite um, it's been quite interesting looking and seeing what's happening. I mean, I've, I've worked working in London for 25 years, and I've I've never seen it like it is. You know, it's slightly busier obviously at the moment, but back in April it was it was very odd. So mm. it is it is definitely a, a mixed message. And again, from our point of view, obviously now we've reopened the office, it would be Really uh, good um, to, to to have one or two extra people in, you know, in terms of people who haven't seen the office since March. But because of the guidelines that the government are putting out, it 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 is a bit of a mixed message to be fair. So, so I'd have to say I watch all these kind of news programs and things like that, and try and make sure that we're we're fully informed what's going on, and we have very good legal advice. But it isn't easy. I have to say, it really isn't easy. And thinking about the uh, the long term future now for yourself and for HSF, uh, Paul, what do you envision over the course of the next year as we move through into the next stage of the pandemic and look to a long term future under the new normal? I think I think with, for us, I think um, you know obviously our main issue is the fact that our office is in, in the centre of London. I think many organisations have that that same issue. So really, it's the mixed messaging on 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 public transport and that type of thing. I, you know, I mean. Some of some of our employees, uh, you know, feel they're quite comfortable driving in, but obviously the concession charge issue is a, you know, isn't isn't very helpful. So those things we've we've got to think about. But we, I strongly feel that, you know, to to to, to keep uh, HSF on the right road, we really need to have our, our office properly open again. Whether we'll ever be able to, you know, have a full capacity is debatable. But certainly, I would look at. You know, people mixture of working from home and and and, and working in the office. Our, our you know, in, in in fairness, our 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 largest challenge going forward is actually the B word, the Brexit, because um, you know we, as I mentioned before, we we have a, a branch in Ireland, mm. so we're losing the passporting rights to 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 sell our financial services product after seventy years. Remember, in in you know at the at the end of the year with the transitional period. And at the moment, it's incredibly difficult because because of the delays and everything that's happened in, um, with with politicians making, not making decisions or making decisions. Then we, you know, we our our application to to say the the Irish regulator uh, obviously has become a little bit old. So we've got to we've got to reapply for with uh, with some with with a new financial plan. It shouldn't be a problem, but obviously, you know, like the UK regulator, everyone's in lockdown, and it's just adding more stress to the business. So, for the life of me, I can't, I can't really see why, um, why the transitional period couldn't be uh, extended under circumstances. But I suppose the government has to, has to weigh out what, what it feels is best. But certainly, from HSF's point of view, and you know, we are the largest healthcare provider in Ireland. It seems. Uh, a real shame that we're putting under extra pressure considering what's going on at the moment. Um, uh, but you know that's 
like we, 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 we've been dealing with this for the last four years and I'm hoping obviously a deal will be done with financial services that will that will make sense and we'll be able to continue passporting but that really is genuinely the, 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 the largest threat to the business going forward and you know People don't realise, I think, that, um, you know, even small insurance companies like HSF, you know, the, uh, European trade is quite important to us. So we've set up by an Irishman and we are, you know, as I say, we're very prevalent there. And in fact, our Irish business is slightly larger than our UK business, so that's how important it is. So that really is, is the challenge. And, uh, you know, we're obviously working on that at the moment, but we would also like to have, a, you know, a, more of a European representation as well. So that's something we're looking into too, because... We feel quite um, sad, really, that uh, that we're, we're we're losing our European arm, if you like. Mm, for sure, and um, the Brexit issue is something that's sort of raged on behind the scenes, hasn't it? With remote negotiations continuing, and we're still, I, I think so. Mm, yeah, we're, we're still no were... closer to knowing whether there will be a deal at the end of the year as well. Absolutely, I think, and I think we're obviously with COVID and everything, people have forgotten that Brexit is still quite a huge issue, and. Mm. And you do read from time to time, you know, in, in terms of negotiation, in particular areas like fishing and farming, and you know, there are there are things coming out. I know there's a, there's now an issue with the trade deal with Japan because you're trying to do something in six weeks that normally takes you know six years. So it is very it is very difficult. And I think I think a little bit of sympathy, maybe a little bit of kindness from the politicians wouldn't go amiss at the moment because you know it's it it is it is putting a, an extra stress on our business, which we really could do without at the moment considering what's happening in the wider world but you know um i have said it before and i've written articles about it and it's it, it you know and take the politics out of it it's, this is i'm talking mm. about pure economics here and common sense actually and of course, um, the outgoing um, director general of the confederation of british industry caroline fairburn said very recently as well that business is it's essentially it's resources um it's contingency resources are being run down as a result of covid and it will be completely unprepared for um a no deal brexit scenario if it does come around absolutely and i mean if you think of if you think of an organization our size our solvency is fantastic in fairness but you know our, our our resources are fairly limited so you know so we only have one compliance manager we have a small finance team so somehow they've got to manage this while we're dealing with everything else and uh you know, as I say, a little, little bit more sympathy from the government wouldn't go amiss at the moment. You know, um, it's, it, it would be good. I mean, I, I, I know the opinion polls are such, even, you know, very strong Brexiteers in the main actually would, would, don't see any harm now. Now we've actually left the EU that there would be a small extension to the, to the transitional period. But, mm. you know, if, it, if it's politically, un, if, it, if it's politically toxic to, to the government at the moment, there's, there's not a lot of, not we can do about it. But, I, anyone ask me, I will talk about it because it, it is really important that people understand, you know, the uh, the stress that it that, that companies like like and charities like ours is, are under at the moment, and it and it is a serious thing. It truly is, and you know, if we had a second wave, for instance, towards the end of the year, mm. while we're trying to sort out our Brexit policies, then I think that would be unfair. And and also, one thing that really annoys me is when. And politicians turn around and say, "We've had years to to, to deal with this. You know, you should have got all your all your all your arrangements sorted out. You know, literally years ago." But you know, really, thanks to the behaviour of politicians, that has been taken away from us. Because, as I say, a business plan, you know, obviously went out of date quite literally because the business plan was written, you know, back in sort of 2018. So. 
you know, and, and naturally the Irish authorities want to make sure that you know we we are are solvent and we and we're going to sell the our, our, obviously our policy uh, in the correct manner. And you've got to understand that when 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 you when Brexit comes to fruition and 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 the transitional period finishes, we don't have any say anymore. We we are a third country branch, our uh, third country uh, going in, which is we, we are trying to. Uh, produce a third country branch in Ireland, and we and 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 what the Irish authorities say goes. And the UK authorities have no sway in this at all. It's not like the good old days. So you know, so we we you know, literally, if a, if a regulator we're trying to sell into says, you know, you've got to do something, then we have to do it. There's, there's, as my Irish lawyer told me, there's no negotiation with this. These are the rules, mm. and you have to stick by them. And I I, I don't think you know the people people who aren't involved with it have any idea. The stress that uh, this has this caused organisations like HSF. It seems quite unfair, but um, it is what it is, I suppose. Certainly. Um, we are unfortunately just about out of time on the programme today, okay. Paul. But, you know, given how informative it's been actually discussing these issues with you, I think it would be fantastic from a listener's perspective as well here to perhaps have you back on the programme um, over the course of the next year to assess what has gone on in the time between and see where we're at. I'd love to do that because I'd love to say, actually say what happened at the end of the year and where we are because obviously it would be good to report that back. It might be useful to other, you know, insurance companies who might be thinking mm. of expanding into Europe because they would literally have to go through what we we've, we've been doing over the last sort of couple of years or so, or three years really. So, so that would be fabulous, absolutely fantastic. I'd love to do that. Well, I think but it would because it, hmm. yeah, I think give the update on where the charity is as well. You know that. Uh, and how we're getting on with our grant making under the, under the new norm, if you like. Hopefully there'll be some positive news to uh, to share on uh, that front uh, for sure. And I say because it's um, one thing, of course, speculating on what the future will bring, but it's something else entirely actually looking back and analysing exactly what's happened. Absolutely. Yes, it will be fascinating in a masochistic sort of way, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but anyway, yes, absolutely. Exactly right. Um, I've got to say, Paul, um, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the, oh, uh, the programme really today. Really nice. Thank you. Yes, thank you again uh, for your time. And most importantly, until we do speak again, do take care and do stay safe um, because yes, we're too. certainly not out of the woods yet, are we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was Paul Jackson speaking, the Group Chief Executive of HSF, the Hospital Saturday Fund. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since his retirement from playing, Sir Andrew has become the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his days as a player, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. During his tenure as skipper, he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Quite impressive. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking with Sir Andrew himself. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection 
was it wasn't Marcus Viscotti who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, 
I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job 
what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... Know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, They'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was, 
we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on home soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. in the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about 
legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... uh, very inclusive. If you're thinking about, think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, 
before we gave us unconscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. Um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred, not without its critics. So I should, and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience. Exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask why do we need the hundred as well? Uh, well, so the hundred is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly... Well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the Blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the Blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly... Um, just the the way the tournament's set up, and it's one day, one game a day over a six week period. Broadcasters will pay money for that, and therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about Test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but. In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.